any science which is very straightforward, logical, math-based, AI is going to trump humans. Mm-hmm. Anytime you have to look at an image, AI is going to do a better job than, uh, than humans. Not only it can make better prediction, it can learn. Welcome to AI in the Wild, a weekly discovery show focused on helping professionals across industries apply AI technology in their organizations. I'm your guide, Mina Sleeb, and through focused interviews with founders, investors, and corporate executives, we distill complex AI technology down to basic business solutions. With that, let's get into the show. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Nuz Shah, a cardiovascular disease specialist and founder and director of Apex Heart and Vascular Care. He holds seven board certifications in cardiology and interventional cardiology. He's published more than 50 articles and abstracts in peer-reviewed journals. He was trained at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York. Dr. Shah currently has hospital privileges and performs interventional procedures at several hospitals in North Jersey, including Hackensack University Medical Center. He specializes in the treatment of circulatory disease, treatment of varicose veins, swelling of the legs, and venous ulcers. Dr. Shah has been awarded top doctor of New York and New Jersey since 2015. He was recently featured on Healthline for his insight into how artificial intelligence is being used in hospitals to detect conditions such as retrial fibrillation, also known as AFib. With that, let's meet the doctor. Doctor, thank you very much for being here today. Absolute pleasure, Mina. Thank you so much for uh, having me here. Appreciate you coming by. Well, you know, we've been trying to schedule this for a while, so I'm glad it finally worked out. Funny enough, we uh, just just for context for the audience, we actually met on an artificial intelligence panel, right? That's right. It was a great panel, and we immediately bonded. And you know, I think we shared some really cool thoughts. I I, I loved listening to your ideas and thoughts and. Yeah, we talked about let's let's meet up soon. Yeah, actually, I was very impressed by the, that entire panel. Uh, we met at something called Fit Talk, a really cool uh, event series focused on uh, fitness and wellness and well-being, um, and how technology is being applied to that space. But I was, I was very impressed by your angles um, and your your insights into um, kind of how AI is being applied in healthcare and specifically cardiology. You being a cardiologist yourself. You know, glad glad it worked out that you were able to come on. Um, so let's just get into it. Uh, Absolutely, I'm I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, a cardiologist is uh, you know most people know what a cardiologist is. We are people who basically take care of the ticker, the heart, which obviously is the single most important organ in all of our bodies. A lot of people don't realize what is an interventional cardiologist. And interventional cardiologists are people who would go and perform interventions on the heart. And in my case, I also do vascular interventions. So it's a procedure that intervention, people's blockages in the legs, leg veins, leg arteries, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we basically you know, go and fix whenever somebody has a blockage, a heart attack, when somebody's having uh, any need for procedures, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. So we are in the business of healing hearts. Right. Uh, so thank you for healing, <laughs> healing hearts out there. And it's not romantic hearts for anybody that's for anybody that's wondering. I think. Actually, I can... Uh, oh, you can do that too. Yeah, actually, that can be done. It's actually, you know, there is a condition called broken heart syndrome. So, you know, we often people joke about, oh, you heal, like, you know, we, we heal broken hearts, which used to be a joke. One of my friends who was a cardiologist, a single guy, his, his dating tagline was, I heal the world one broken heart at a time. 
<laughs> but uh, but in uh, in reality, there is something called takasubo cardiomyopathy, mm. which is a condition where people go through a heartbreak. It doesn't have to be a romantic heartbreak. It can be a parent dying, wow. a child dying. Yeah. The heart takes such immense stress, it becomes broken, quote-unquote, which, which basically means that heart stops functioning. Wow. It balloons up in size, and it's called takasuba, which is a Japanese name for a, an octopus trap. Wow. That's how the heart looks like, and uh, it, uh, it's a pretty serious condition. It can be fixed with uh, proper care and medications and interventions. So, yeah, so we do actually take care of broken uh, hearts. So, so broken, broken heart is actually a medical, a medical diagnosis that you can actually get. That's, that's very interesting. That's I true. did not expect, <laughs> I did not expect, I did not even expect that to even come up. So good to know. So the next time I'm feeling like that, it's actually a medical condition. I, could, I should come see you. It could be one. Yeah. And I uh, hope you never have to. Well, I, hope I, <laughs> I really hope so. Um, but I wanted to get into like how you got here, um, learn a little bit more about you. You, you have quite a quite a lengthy uh, bio, and obviously, like you know, you've worked for that. So I wanted to get a sense of like you know how you got here. What what got you interested at least in in tech after the the love of of healthcare? Yeah. So you know, I come from a background of physicians. Uh, grew up. My parents are both uh, doctors. My dad's a pediatrician. My brother actually happens to be a cardiologist. I actually came into cardiology a little bit uh, with hesitation in the beginning. I, I used to be really good in mathematics and went into the Olympics of math uh, as representing Team India. I grew up there. But then at some level, you know, seeing my parents, seeing uh, the difference uh, being in healthcare you can make in people's lives tangibly, decided to go into medical, <clears throat> medical school. Ended up doing my cardiology rotations and absolutely got fascinated. And as a matter of fact, the one thing that fascinated me in cardiology, apart from the pace and apart from the fact that you can actually make a difference immediately right away when someone's dying, you go and intervene and immediately you have the potential of saving that life. Mm -hmm. The other aspect that fascinated me was technology. Cardiology has always been at the forefront of technology. So, uh, you know, and I'll give you more examples of it. But that's what got me interested into cardiology. I got fortunate enough uh, to have a lot of research in cardiology, led me to uh, one of the top centers in the world called Mount Sinai Medical Center, which is, uh, as you know, in Upper East Side, it's, it's the mecca of cardiology. I learned under some of the best in the world uh, in interventional cardiology, learned to do complex procedures in the heart, in the legs, and eventually led to um, working there as a vascular director for four years and finally started on my own uh, in my practice, uh, Apex Heart and Vascular Group, the founder and director, and, and the sister branch of it is the Vein Restoration Clinic where we take care of varicose vein patients as well. So again, it's been a fascinated journey. Hmm. Uh, you know, definitely been motivated by making a difference as well as by seeing the, the incredible technological breakthroughs. Right, so even in, uh, when you were in residency, you, there was a clear interest in technology because um, cardiology has kind of been ahead of the curve, at least in medicine, that's what I'm getting? Yes, absolutely. Cardiology has always been uh, at, the, uh, at the forefront of this, as I said. Uh, you know, we're talking about artificial intelligence. Cardiologists have been using AI for decades right now. Really? Now, the technology wasn't perfect back then, but you know, when we read the electrocardiograms or EKGs, which is the simplest way of a, a simple paper, 12 squiggly lines, as, as we call it, you can see uh, what people, it's like a snapshot of what's going on in the electrical activity of the heart. 
and machines have been reading it for us for at least uh, over a decade now. So cardiologists has uh, been using technologies. We are the pioneers as a, as a collective group, I would say, in terms of uh, doing minimally invasive procedure. Now we have like tiny little wires and catheters and small chips that we can put inside people's heart that can protect them from dying suddenly. We have small wires we can put from people's wrist that can go inside the heart and actually open life-saving complex blockages and save them an open heart surgery. We can do things like putting a new, brand new valve without having to cut the chest open. We can put umbrellas inside uh, chambers of the heart so they don't get blood clots and they don't get risk of strokes. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of technological breakthroughs have come in the field of cardiology. And um, yeah, very fascinated by it. So it's crazy interesting. I think a lot of the things you mentioned, I assume that you know, they're, they're medical treatments. So what is, I guess, the, the intersection or where does technology intersect as a, other than the data collection aspect, right? Because you're, you're saying, um, you know, in cardiology, we've been using, you know, machines to take and ingest this data for quite a long time. But I guess what is now the advancement or why now are you able to now use things like artificial intelligence to take that next step to make your procedures even more advanced or even more um, accurate? Yeah, so technology always plays a role when it comes to healthcare in a, in a number of different ways. You know, it can help optimize things. It can help with data collection and data interpretation. The simplest way to put it is, as a cardiologist, I have several jobs. One of the job is when patient comes to us, they want to know what's wrong with them, if there is anything wrong with them, fix it, if it's fixable, up to the extent it's possible, all that stuff. The second part of our job is predicting the future. Mm -hmm. We are literally fortune tailors. So we, patients or people, I would say, come to us and say, hey doc, what do you think? How am I gonna do? Mm -hmm. And you know, it's a, it's a, it's a responsibility, it's a privilege. Uh, we are one of the very few fields in medicine, even within the medicine where we are posed with these questions because people want to know what their longevity, they want to know their quality of life. Right. You know, most people know that heart disease is number one cause of death in the world, in, in the U.S., um, more than top five cancers combined. Right. So to this date, when people come to their doctor's office, they want to make sure their cardiovascular health is good or not, and what is their future risk? Right, right. So we have to, to see folks, see people, and we have to make a prediction. So how do we make, the, make, how do we make this prediction, right? We have to rely on certain data sets, mm. and there is an algorithm in our brain that, uh, that we go through based on the training we receive, based on the guidelines we have from our societies, based on the data points that patients have. So we were just discussing how you're using technology to be a little bit more proactive. So we're discussing, you know, you're using a lot of these readings in order to make sure um, to kind of diagnose people at an earlier stage. Is that, I feel like that's what we're getting to. So. Yeah, so <clears throat> I was just talking about uh, how as cardiologists we have to be fortune tellers because people ask, you know, what's my cardiovascular health? And right now we do make that decision based on people's history, the risk factors. We have certain data points that we have in our mind that we, based on the guidelines we have, based on certain testing we perform on the patients. So there is an algorithm that we use intuitively right now where technology can come in and help is actually defining that algorithm better. Mm -hmm. And with artificial intelligence, which is machine learning, 
uh, is like machine learns as time goes and it can learn from the data itself. And we already have proof now that it can surpass human uh, computation powers. Interesting. So can you give us, uh, can you give us an example of you know, maybe a study that you know, you've either, either been a part of or something that really has interested you? I, I saw something about AFib that, that you were mentioned in. So can you give us a, a sense of how it's actually been practically used? Yeah, so atrial fibrillation is irregular heart rhythm, which means that heart, instead of beating from the right upper chamber and normal sinus rhythm, which is the natural pacemaker, it comes chaotic, irregular, and it actually has a very high risk of causing stroke. And unfortunately, it can some, sometimes happen and people have no idea or no symptoms that they are in this irregular heart rhythm. They feel completely fine. But it's not something that should be ignored because it can lead to stroke. Right. So detecting atrial fibrillation is, is, of, is very, very important. Mm. Now, traditionally, we rely on monitors. You know, up until now, we were using monitors that we can place on people's heart externally for anywhere from one day to seven days, sometimes up to 30 days. We do have internal monitor, which, can, which is like a little chip we can put inside people's heart. Mm. Um, and that's to monitor them on a regular Right, but it's, it's not something that you can do on general population. It's a procedure, right? So we really re rely on the short-term gathering of the data. Right. With the new uh, devices that people can have, like smartwatch, Fitbits, Apple Watch, all those devices, mm -hmm. um, the Aura Ring, you can actually monitor this uh, heart rate and heart rhythm for much longer. Unfortunately, these devices are still not very sensitive or specific. There is a signal to noise ratio is still not in the favor. Right. But hopefully as time goes, that continues to get better. But where I get the most fascinated is this recent trial that AI can do a tremendous job in picking up atrial fibrillation based on people's heart rhythm when they are normal. On a normal EKG, Let's say we do an EKG on you or me right now, we are in regular heart rhythm. With AI, it can look at the amplitude of this EKG and can say if you have future risk of atrial fibrillation. Let me give an example. Yeah, please. This is like, you know tsunami is gonna come in, right? You look at ocean and you have to predict when, when is tsunami gonna come in. Now we have technology that AI can look at the ocean at a calm ocean and can pretty much predict that if there is a risk and chance of tsunami happening in, in, in a foreseeable future or not. Interesting. Wow. This is important because normally patients are coming to you when something's wrong, right? But that means that fundamentally when they get to the office in a traditional EKG, something has to be going wrong at that time. And that's not always the case, right? No, that's not always the case. Oftentimes people come because, you know, because of different reasons. They have symptoms, you know, they have symptoms related to their uh, they have symptoms of shortness of breath and they don't have irregular heart rhythm or palpitation. Sometimes they have a strong family history right. and they themselves just want to check themselves. Right. Sometimes uh, they come in with symptoms uh, which are completely different and there are more circulation symptoms and we need to make a prediction and now we pick up things on this EKG. So not every patient who comes in is symptomatic and, and has ongoing pathology, but sometimes they may have markers suggesting that they have future risk of this pathology. So it helps us become that fortune teller that I was telling you, which, which has been very challenging otherwise. Right, and in traditional cases, a lot of time, humans can't necessarily pick up those markers, especially if they're, 
you know, kind of uh, nascent, right? Like, unless, like, unless it's a very extreme case, it's very hard to tell, right? Unless it's, you know, specifically showing signs. Absolutely. So any, any skill set, any, um, any science, which is very straightforward, logical, math-based, you know, the computations are pretty straightforward, AI is going to trump humans. Mm. Anytime you have to look at an image, AI is going to do a better job than, uh, than humans as far as it knows the black and white because not only it can make better prediction, it can learn right. when it compares to gold standard. It can continue to learn from itself. Mm. It's what we call the deep neural network or DNN. Mm. So these this deep neural networks are very smart. They, give, they, they rely on data and they learn from the data. And once as a human or whatever the gold standard is, tells them that, that what they learn from the data is right or wrong, mm. they continue to learn more and more and eventually they're gonna surpass the master. So things like non-medicine, like chess, Go, any those things, right. like AI is gonna beat humans because it just it can just learn on its own. Same way, within medicine, anything that's an image, whether it's a pathology sample from a skin biopsy or whether it's a fundoscopy exam in the eye to see if people have changes of diabetes or if it's an EKG finding, mm. AI is probably going to beat humans. Right. Yeah. So, so I guess right now, you're the first, I like to call them, practicing physician that I've had on, uh, on the show. Um, and I really wanted to get this, um, this perspective because you're really seeing how it's really being implemented. So a lot, of a, a lot of my past guests have been the creators of the technology. Um, ultimately, we're all assuming in some way, shape or form how it's being um, actually implemented. Um, but you're really, you're either implementing this stuff or you're kind of the sign off on, yes, we'll use this or we won't use this because it's not, um, you know, it's not there yet uh, from, from, a, from an accuracy. Commercial standpoint. standpoint. From a commercial standpoint. So I guess for you, how is it, how's it really being applied? Is it being applied successfully? Are people, is there pushback in the industry or is there like, yeah, this works, let's, let's bring it in? I think the industry is, is very excited as well as nervous. I, I wanna say, as, as in general, as cardiologists, we are cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Like anything else, it's a great weapon to have, it's a great thing to have. But it requires regulation. It requires, uh, you know, oversighting. I mean, at the end of the day, AI or the deep neural network is actually a better term, is learning from the gold standard. Mm -hmm. it, it makes a diagnosis and it basically learns it from the gold standard diagnosis. And whatever mistake or no, not mistakes, it, it continues to replicate it. But our gold standards are oftentimes not perfect. So we don't even have a perfect gold standard in, in a lot of areas, and now we are trying to train AI, which is gonna try to master itself based on those incomplete uh, data points. So first we have to improve our standards, gold standards in every arena in cardiology and in medicine, and only then AI can, can replicate. For example, right now this EKG reading things, I was giving you an example, as amazing as it is that we can have future ability to you know we have ability to predict future risk of atrial fibrillation and hence future future risk of stroke same way we can people we can pick up congestive heart failure heart attack etc it is still also making errors right in in simple diagnosis and when the investigators go back and look at why is ai making mistake because the gold standard were humans, mm. and humans would make those kind of mistakes. So now the machine is learning from humans, 
and it's it's making those mistakes. So so there is definitely a gap that needs to be closed before AI is perfect and come into play. Obviously, there are ethical dilemmas, there are moral dilemmas, there are medical legal dilemmas. So you know those are much bigger, broader conversations. Right. But yeah, I so, and I think your gold standard that you're talking about is in the tech world. We call it what is the what is the machine being being trained off of? It's being trained off of historical data. Right. Right. So if your historical data is inaccurate or it's based off of inaccuracies in the person or in the human, it takes a while for the machine to then become more accurate if it's being trained off of inaccuracies. Right. And we don't even, not even inaccurate, if it's imperfect, if it's anything but like pristine, 100% perfect, you are making major assumptions because it quadruples, right? It's like a logarithmic scale. So that 2% error Right. now becomes like 2% times 2% times 2%. It just continues to grow. Yeah, and in, and in healthcare, that 2% error is Oh, that's, it's everything. That's, that's life, right? I always say that, you know, if a test is 95% accurate and there's a 5% probability of missing, for an individual, it's 0 or 100. Right. You guys remind me a lot of... Um, I, was, I was working on a project with the FDNY and uh, the NYPD, and they were saying, like, if we're going to buy technology, it has to work 100% of the time, right? And it has to work in un, in all circumstances, right? right. The electricity is not working. There's no Wi-Fi. It has to work, right? You guys kind of remind me, like, there is no room for inaccuracies, right? Because that's life. Yeah, the room for inaccuracy, it, it's a very troubling zone. And again, I think as, as humanity right now, we can forgive human errors, mm-hmm. But when a catastrophe happened or could happen because of a machine error or error based on AI or something along those lines, I'm not sure people are ready to uh, forgive and forget yet. Yeah, and uh, that will be very much tested in the coming coming weeks and and years, actually, as as it's being applied across different industries. Um, I I guess for you, um, where else do you see... um, artificial intelligence being applied um, in healthcare? Um, I think in an in a optimistic scenario everywhere. Mm-hmm. I don't see, I, I don't think this is like a scene from future. Um, I think in our lifetime, and we are both relatively young, mm-hmm. so I think in our lifetime we're going to see where a lot of things will be dictated by, by AI. AI doesn't mean it's artificial intelligence only. Some people call it call it assisted intelligence. So yeah. do I think it's gonna replace doctors? Do we do I think we're gonna have like board certified uh, softwares and uh, neural networks? I doubt it in my, in our lifetime. But I think we're gonna be relying on AI very heavily. Yeah. You know, we're gonna. I mean, I was just telling somebody the future scene. You know, like you will be sleeping for seven hour and 32 minutes precisely because AI has determined that's the optimum duration of sleep for you. You will wake up to an alarm tune. That tune is picked up by AI based on your favorite music, like what would be the most soothing for you. You'll wake up, you will have appointment with your doctor, which at that point will mean going on your phone or whatever device you have and pulling up and your, your doctor will basically use a machine to scan your retina, look at your genetic markers, and make most of the diagnosis and say, hey, you may have a risk of sleep apnea, you may have a risk of uh, irregular heart rhythm, you, can, you need to get this scan or that scan done. And I don't think this is that far-fetched. I think it's, it's gonna happen. I think things are gonna be truly dictated by, uh, by data. 
Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. We're already connected to our devices at, at all times. When I, when I don't have a, my phone, I feel like I'm missing my arm, you know, and uh, which is over my hand, which is kind of, it's kind of sad in a way, but it is what it is. Like that's, that's kind of the world we live in. So I think we're only going more towards that. Yeah, the wearable devices are changing the industry, right? We have the we have the rings, we have the the bands, the whoop bands, and the aura ring, which I think has, right now, the most buzz about them. But we have Fitbits. Now there are wearable devices, from everything like deep kinesthetic uh, devices, devices that will be on the eyelashes. I mean, I'm I'm hearing like wearable devices in any part of the body you can imagine. You heard something on the eyelashes? And contact lenses yeah. and like yeah. Wow, that's wild. If you had to go back, what's one thing you wish you knew as a, as a student or as a resident about technology? That it always changes. Hmm. Always changes, it's, it's never perfect. And I think, um, you know, as, as when you are younger, when you are you know, more, you know, more in that learning phase, you end up falling in love with technology oftentimes, rather than the patients, rather than the... Uh, falling in love with, uh, sometimes you fall in love with the pathology that, you know, this and certain disease, certain procedures, you love to, uh, you know, you're you're really good at, mm-hmm. or you, you enjoy doing those things. What I'm learning now more and more is you gotta fall in love with everything. Mm-hmm. You gotta fall in love with the patient. You gotta fall in love with the value you're bringing to the world. And, you know, it could be through technology. It could be through just talking with people. Oftentimes, I feel like I make the biggest difference in people's lives, and I'm actually spending 10 minutes listening to them mm-hmm. and, and telling them. And, you know, this is the human element, which I think is still there, mm-hmm. and it's, it's extremely valuable. And, you know, as much as technology is there, um, I think the human element oftentimes trumps. So I think at the end of the day, we, you know, I, I tell myself to fall in love with the whole picture every aspect of medical practice, every aspect of um, patient care, Mm. and not just technology. That's that's fantastic. I I think um, for me, I get a lot of the same uh, types of learnings in the sense that be very ready to adapt to any situation. I think the people that are gonna win in today's day and age are, are the adaptable, right? The ones that are just consistently like, oh, this is new, all right, well, is it working? All right, can we implement it? Yeah, let's do it. Exactly, exactly. I think things are going to continue to change dramatically. I mean, imagine this. The biggest challenge in healthcare right now um, is, uh, is the people who are trained, you know, in older times right. and for them to keep up with the newer generation. It's, it's, like, it's almost like reversal, right? Like, like a lot of other industries and medicine is, is at the last of this wave, but, but we are feeling this wave where the newer generation of doctors, nurses, medical students are coming with tremendous knowledge, tremendous skill sets, uh, technology, all of it. So uh, keeping up with it is, is the key. Have you seen the... the have you seen the providing of care really change? I, I think from, I guess my question is from like a systematic perspective, have you seen, I guess, like role shift in the hospital or like the way care is deployed? Have you seen that shift at all? There is, there has been shifts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all across the country, if you think about it, the EMR went into effect, right? It, it started as, you know, you have to have some degree of electronic medical records, it went to a degree that it's 100% mandatory. Now, some of the folks who didn't know how to type, they never learned to type because they grew up in an era where typing was not a need or necessity or a skill set that was required. 
um, or even like dictations. I mean, they had trouble keeping up with, with electronic medical record and they slowed down and a lot of uh, physicians retired or had to re retire or had to slow down. Uh, same thing happened in, in a lot of different healthcare personnel. So we have seen this uh, shift. But again, there are people who, uh, you know, as you said, learn to adapt and, and they maintain. Mm. You brought up a very interesting question, uh, not question, but you brought up a very interesting point about the wearables. Um, how much, how much of, uh, how much effect do you think the wearables will have on the future of medicine? Do you really think the data that we're collecting from wearables um, will really um, kind of change, I guess, how you specifically uh, monitor patients and work with patients? Yeah, so this is, I think, a very interesting question. I think it's a billion dollar question, it's probably multi-billion dollar question, I would think, because the industry is that huge. And that's then, why Apple's going so hard and yeah, Google's uh, going so hard. Like, Google, I think, just bought Fitbit. Like, like everybody's touching a wearable because they, they kind of see the data. They kind of see it. I think the biggest players in healthcare are now tech industry yeah. and not even pharmaceutical or, or healthcare organizations. Um, having said that, it's it's a tricky thing, right? I mean, at what point people get data fatigue? We don't, I mean, we talked about this a little bit last time. We, we don't know the answers to those questions. Uh, you know, we think more data we collect, it's good. We can, the diagnostic accuracy goes up when you have more data, the predictability gets better the sensitivity and specificity of, of whatever diagnosis you want to make, it continues to get better. There are a few areas where I see there's a lot of positive things that can come out. One is the atrial fibrillation we talked about because it could be very catastrophic and can very easily be missed. With a good wearable technology, with a little bit aid of AI, I think that could be a complete game changer. Heart rate variability is another big one or, or any bio, there are a few other biomarkers, similar ones, which can tell your overall fitness. Basically, heart rate variability, for those who don't know about it, it's it's a measure of knowing how quickly your heart rate can adapt to the stress versus, uh, you know, to, to uh, flight or fright uh, stimuli, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, heart rate variability is a great number, and it can tell a lot about your intrinsic health. Mm -hmm. So focusing on heart rate variability or such similar biomarkers like resting heart rate, pulse pressure, et cetera, can help determine your overall health. Sleep markers, like certain numbers in sleep can help as well. There's tons of data showing that you can monitor your health better. It can be used as a motivational tool for those who need that or who benefit from that. Uh, there are things we can pick up like major depression, thyroid conditions, anemia, uh, you know, low vitamin D, low testosterone, things like that. It, the, these monitors and these biomarkers can give a hint that, hey, it's time to get these things checked. Yeah. So those are the good, great things that can come out of these wearable technologies um, where you can pick up these things. The bad things that can happen is overdiagnosis, okay. right? You open Pandora's box. Now, somebody who's in their 30s has no other symptoms whatsoever and wear this device and suddenly now they have extra, what we call skip heartbeats or premature atrial or premature ventricular contractions, which are which are pretty normal. A lot of people probably have them. Now suddenly they find these extra heartbeats while they're working out. Obviously, it's gonna lead to unnecessary stress and anxiety in their lives because they wanna know what it is. It may lead to a lot of testing downstream because no one's sure. It can lead to uh, you know a lot of healthcare money being spent in a direction where we don't wanna spend with this limited pie of healthcare money we have. 
And the worst is it can lead to um, things that we don't want to diagnose, um, prescribing treatments that can have potential really bad adverse effects. Mm. So how much of this Pandora's box do we really want to open? That's a, that's a really interesting point. I didn't think of it. This kind of ties into the whole, uh, the whole not argument, but the, the discussion being had around um, whether or not who should own the data the healthcare data. Is it the patient or is it the hospital or is it the conglomerate or is it the doctor themselves? Who should monitor and track the data um, of the patients? And I think you bring up a great point. Like, even if we give the, the data to the patient, do they know what to do with it? Do they know what to be alarmed about? Do they not know what to be alarmed about? And you can really create a lot of stress and anxiety if you tell me, like, I see a murmur and I'm like, oh my God, or I see like, a weird like spike and I'm like oh should I freak out and like you're like no relax um, and I would never have cared prior right right and people happen to have those things I mean it reminds me of this uh, documentary about uh, Elizabeth Holmes did you mm-hmm. did you get a chance to watch that one this is uh, about the the genetic testing that was going oh, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean it's it's phenomenal what right. what went down there but uh, yeah, and I mean, people could own that data, right? I think the, the, there's a lawyer in, in England, I think he sued them and he basically wanted his genetic markers and they had to give it to him. So I don't know the regulations right now, but I think as, as an individual, uh, if I understand correctly, you people do have you know right to have their own, own data. Yeah. Whether it's a good thing or not, I don't know. But this is America. I think people would want to own their own data. But, but, it, but you're right, it could lead to a lot of unnecessary stress and anxiety. Yeah, we're having that conversation about data ownership for uh, things inside healthcare, outside of healthcare. You're dealing with like financial data, with uh, how is my insurance score actually like, uh, uh, you know, made or, you know, and, and so you're, you're dealing with the whole data ownership question all over the place. Um, but I think mostly, it, you know, the biggest thing is healthcare. Yeah, and I think there is a there is a potential incredible downside on individual level if the data is owned by, you know, a third party who now has the ability to sell this data to payers, right? Insurance companies, healthcare organizations, because people could very easily be penalized, right. or or they can be rewarded based on their their data and their biomarkers. And I mean, you know, we can always have a doomsday <laughs> imagination, but it is possible and it is likely, right? Uh, there's actually a book that I read that an in, that insurance industry, like, like like this is like dystopian future, like hundreds of years from now when everything is like run by AI and, and insurance industry actually owns like people's data. And right. if you don't, if you don't uh, do well, you, you know, they, they actually can penalize you and, you know. Well, I, I don't know if you're keeping up in what's happening in China, but they're not very far off from that with their, their scores on, um, I think it's called, uh, they basically give every citizen a social score, depending on, are you jaywalking in the street? If you're jaywalking in the street, your social score goes down, right? How influential are you? Your social score goes up. Like They actually are starting that and they're using computer vision and machine learning to kind of track citizens and give each person a social score. Um, so we're not far off and we're not far off from a lot of Black Mirror episodes. Um, <laughs> that we've been hearing, that we've been watching. So um, it's, it's gonna be a very interesting uh, 
very interesting few years uh, to see where we go. But I, I like the fact that at least people are starting to wake up to how uh, third parties are using their data or like, you know, social networks are using their data. After Cambridge Intelligence, Cambridge Intelligence, um, you got a bunch of people just waking up being like, all right, well, we got we to gotta do something yeah, absolutely. I think what happened with uh, with with those guys and with the social media, I think it can happen in any field and including healthcare. So in cardiology particularly, there is a, there's a large conference which talks about artificial intelligence in cardiology. It was in July in San Francisco. And, you know, to our credit, a large chunk of this conference people spent talking about potential uh, regulatory, um, you know, oversight that is needed. So there is an awareness that this is incredible. And to quote your well, before we go into this AI wild, wild west, it's better to have some kind of regulation, some kind of guidelines, uh, you know, to tame this beast. Yeah, and I think the conversation that needs to be had is whose job is it to regulate? Is it the government? Is it the, the healthcare institutions? Is it the tech companies? Who's regulating it and who, well, because this, the companies are not necessarily incentivized to regulate it, right? So it has to be a third, it has to be either the government, it has to be somebody outside of that, that is not necessarily incentivized either way by profit to be able to to regulate it properly. That's right, yeah. Um, but we'll, we'll see what ends up happening with that. Um, I want to get into a little bit, kind of how do you stay up to date on all these, you know, kind of these technological trends if you, if I'm a physician listening or I'm in the healthcare field and I want to be you, um, you know, and, and be so well adept on, uh, to technology, um, how do I stay up to date? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, new updates that come out. I think every major organization, at least in cardiology, every major organization, whether it's American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, um, we now have dedicated panels talking about artificial intelligence. Out of the four or five day conference, there is like two or three days where there is a session going on, plenary session talking about different updates. Because every week there is a new paper coming out, like major landmark trial coming out talking about role of AI and how it's beating humans in like this thing and that thing. And, you know, I mean, there are the three major areas is heart failure, which is the number one cause of mortality, coronary artery disease, and arrhythmia. And AI is already showing promises in all three. Wow. So it's a lot of, you know, reading. There are a lot of experts. Mayo Clinic is truly, um, I think, leading in this. You know, they actually have a division of uh, artificial intelligence in, in the, their cardiology department. They, their clinical rounds, now they have a software engineer rounding Wow. with their cardiologists because they truly believe that um, unless like clinical knowledge meets with technological knowledge, uh, great things can happen. So the true innovation can only happen when you combine the two. So they are, they are you know, as far as I know, they are leading in this. I, I don't know any other institute who's doing this right now. They're the ones that came out with the AFib study, right? They came, oh no, that was Stanford, uh, Mayo Clinic, but Mayo Clinic I'm sure has worked in, they work in everything. So they have a lot of research in heart failure and artificial intelligence, uh, you know, the heart scans, looking at coronary artery disease. But yeah, they, I mean, so this is what happens right now, you know, where people are, and again, there is a lot of uh, good things that can come out of it, a lot of value we can bring for our patients. There is a lot of potential for companies to come up with innovation, which can be very lucrative. Um, so yeah, this is, this is big. Uh, I just keep up by nonstop reading about it. I just read a book 
uh, called Rebooting AI by Gary Marcus. Um, I am actually reading the book by Eric Topral, which says uh, the patient will see you now yes. instead of instead of the doctor will see you now, which is going to be the future of healthcare. So a lot to learn. Wow. That's, uh, that is a complete flip from the entire system. That's amazing. Um, very cool. What do you... Uh, what are you nervous about? As far as AI and cardiology? Just <laughs> or in general with uh, technology? Yeah, technology. Um, I'm not nervous. I think a lot of uh, senior doctors, the, there is this generalized paranoia that technology is going to replace doctors. You know, there's going to be, you know, a lot of industries are. And it's not a, it's not a completely irrational fear because a lot of industries have been wiped out. A lot of areas within healthcare has been completely replaced. You know, anything that is image interpretation only is very rapidly going away. I read echoes, right? For example, day in and day out, which is the ultrasound of the heart. And AI is doing great, really great about it. So there is that generalized, a little bit nervousness. Uh, but I'm not worried about uh, AI replacing doctors in any foreseeable future. I do worry about what this Pandora's box we talked about. You know, what is this technology going to do? What is it going to open up? Uh, there's a little bit worry about regulatory authorities coming in uh, and penalizing our patients for not uh, doing certain things. Penalizing uh, providers. Mm -hmm. Doctors get penalized by insurance companies if their patients don't do well. So the whole uh, incentive-based payment system um, is also, you know, in, instead of the fee-for-service, which is more patients you see, more services you provide, more money you make. Um, on the other side is more incentive-based, which is very data-driven, that if you prove that your patient has, uh, you're improving their blood sugar control or diabetes control, or if you are improving their heart rate variability or, you know, some of these numbers that we talked about, or if you are just overall reducing the risk of stroke and heart attack more than the natural curve in your own population. You will be incentivized versus if you don't do it, you may be penalized. I think it's a very tricky, very gray zone because... Uh, so that's the current system, you're saying? No, the, 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 a lot of payers are trying to get into that system. Right now, we're sort of into the mix. Uh, it depends on the government. It depends on uh, the type of program. I mean, health insurance is another huge conversation by itself. So how they get paid, but but overall the consensus is the fee for service model has not been working. Sure. So they have been trying to to change that based on performance. But when they talk about this performance based incentives, it's a little bit tricky because it it really depends on these data points. Mm -hmm. And as they as they say, there is there are lies, there are bigger lies, and then there is statistics. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, you know, data, when you have to rely on some of this data point, it, it can, it doesn't reflect a patient. It doesn't reflect an individual. You know, somebody can, one of my, like, two of my practices are in a very urban, very, um, you know, in an area very heavy with immigrants um, in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, people are not that well-to-do. Their cultural beliefs, their overall financial, economical, and cultural status, they don't allow them to have a healthy lifestyle, healthy diet choices. And uh, to put that into mix with, um, with uh, you know, like Beverly Hills, California, is just not, uh, it doesn't match up. So how do you get rid of these confounding variables? How do you truly compare Apple to Apple? Uh, it's tricky. And these things can, you know, is making a lot of providers a little bit nervous, you know. That's a, that, we could talk about the, you know, the healthcare insurance system for, for possibly hours. Um, but I think you bring up that, that that point is fantastic because 
you know, one of the one of the issues with um, trying to kind of like just implement technology anywhere is the fact that the system itself is not prepared um, to take on certain technologies, right? Because it's not adept to, um, it's not incentivizing the the practitioners to kind of provide. And I'm not just talking about healthcare. Um, I'm talking about mostly traditional industries that have not the entire system has not necessarily caught up. Uh, to modern times. So I think that that specific area is uh, kind of a Pandora's box on its own. But to your point, like to really provide the best care, that necessarily, that really has to change. And to be able to use the data that we have as best as possible, absolutely, like we need to see kind of, a, you know, that being reformed as much as possible. Um, but we'll see where I don't think either one of us are on the insurance side of things, uh, or at least we don't work there. So I don't know how much we can do about that. Yeah. But uh, we, should, we should keep having these conversations. I think to your point, um, being on, you know, being a part of these conversations, being on panels, uh, going to different conferences, I think that's, you know, that's how I learn as much as possible. It seems like that's how you learn. Um, the books you mentioned are fantastic. Is there anything in particular um, that you would like the community to be on the lookout for for you or um, ways that they can, what they should be reaching out to you about, if anything? Yeah, so I think, you know, I'm truly passionate about technology, uh, artificial intelligence per se. The technology is advancing. I mean, we are fixing things through tiny uh, wires that I, I told you, and people need new heart valves. We are putting it through groin. We are, when people need stents in their heart arteries and blockages, we are actually fixing, fixing it through the wrist. Um, people have, you know, blockages that even 10 years ago would require amputation at the knee. Now we can fix these blockages and stuff uh, going from the ankle and, and fixing it and, and they can actually walk home in some cases in wow. two days. Uh, so, you know, I feel privileged to be at the forefront of this, what, what we call interventional technologies, where we are making this life-altering interventions, whether it's their heart health, whether it's their vascular health. Um, very passionate about those, uh, those areas as well, and technology is also helping those areas. Everything has changed and improved in terms of wire choices to machineries to just planning. We have CAT scans now that we can do before that can give us accurate 3D mapping, knowing exactly where is the chambers of the heart so we can, when we go with, with our catheters and wires, we, we exactly know. So this is why when people are nervous about AI, I say, AI is not your eyes, you know. It's like we we have to go out in the dark, mm. and AI is like the flashlight. Mm. It helps you put light, and you can see, you know, where things uh, are, and it can help you. You still need your own eyes awesome. to see those things. I love that. On that, we, we will end on that note. But is there, a, uh, you know, is there a way people can follow you or your clinic or? Yeah, please follow us. Uh, you know, we have uh, our um, social media accounts: uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Apex Heart and Vascular. It's Apex Heart AVC on Instagram. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn, Anusha, or Apex Heart and Vascular. Um, absolutely look forward to hearing from uh, anyone and everyone, and absolute pleasure being here. Well, thank you very much for being here. And uh, if you uh, if you want to get your heart checked, feel free to reach out to the good doctor here. Um, thank you very much, doctor, for joining us, and it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Pleasure. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us in the wild this week. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or however you listen. Catch you next week. And as always, stay blessed, my friends.